Hi, everybody, and welcome to your Saturday episode. I hope that you are enjoying the holiday season. You may not be listening to this in December when it drops, uh, but for those of you who are, I just want to wish you happy holidays. I love this time of year, and I just encourage you to really lean into the magic of this time of year, how things can really just start to slow down. I think a lot of us get caught up in the hustle and the busyness and have to get all the gifts. And it can be a really stressful time of year, especially with kids. And just really challenge you not to buy into that. You know, I, I texted my sister earlier this week and I said, any ideas for Christmas and or anything you want, anything on your list? She's like, let's not do this. Let's go to lunch. I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. <laughs> I don't want anything. I don't need anything. Let's just go have lunch. That sounds perfect. So how can you make a season that a lot of people allow to be stressful, less stressful, and really just enjoy this time of year. I love the completion of one year as we enter into another. I've always loved the holidays. It's always, always been my favorite year. Halloween through New Year's is my hands down favorite time of year. Always has been since I was little. And as usual, I'm going to be doing my end of year podcast, walking you through your end of year ritual and your New Year's ritual. So that'll be coming in a few weeks. So stay tuned for that. I also would love for you to join me on Wednesday, December 20th. I'm going to be hosting one of my virtual group coaching calls. It's only $20. It's all on the end of the year, like how to really close this year out, how to let go of any regrets you have for this year, how to deal with holiday stress. I'm going to be talking about that. And then I'm going to be taking coaching. So questions about really anything. <laughs> it's really an open coaching session. I'm just going to be speaking a little bit to holiday stress and end of year and all that kind of stuff. It's only $20. It's recorded. If you can't make it live, it's Wednesday, December 20th at 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. I won't do the rest of the time zone conversions. You can figure it out from there. The website is christinehassler.com slash group. Again, christinehassler.com slash group. I'd love for you to join me. Today, my guest is Manisha Takor. She is the author of Money Zen, and I love her story. Uh, we don't just talk about money and how to become financially healthy and emotionally wealthy. We talk about starting over, especially a little bit, quote unquote, later in life. And she shares her personal story about that. So let me tell you a little bit more about Manisha. She's worked in financial services for more than 30 years with an emphasis on women's economic empowerment and financial well-being. She's a nationally recognized thought leader in this space. She's been featured in tons of publications and media outlets. Prior to writing Money Zen, Manisha co-authored two personal finance books for women in their 20s and 30s. Today, her work focuses on helping people of all ages balance financial health and emotional wealth. She has an MBA from Harvard and tons of certifications and degrees. She's a smart cookie. She splits her time between Portland, Oregon and rural Maine. So she totally lives on two different coasts. You can learn more about her at moneyzen.com. Before we dive into my interview, I want to thank my sponsor for this week, Organifi. I mentioned this last time when I talked about Organifi, but if you don't know what to get somebody, get them some Organifi goodies. I mean, stuff that they will actually use. 
how many gifts have you given that you know people haven't used and how many gifts have you received that you haven't used? (laughs) So getting Organifi products that really help people with their health, with their well-being is a great gift. So go to Organifi.com and save 20% off by using promo code over it. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, promo code over it, or you can go to Organifi.com slash over it. People will really love their gold blend. I love making little turmeric lattes from their gold blend. There's also their most well-known product, the product that I think made them famous. They're famous in my mind. Their green juice blend tastes so good, gives you so many nutrients and stuff that's good for you (laughs) and red juice and their immunity. Put together a little gift basket for people you love and be like, here, my gift to you this year is health in a delicious, easy way. So again, go to Organifi.com slash over it or use promo code over it at checkout. All right. And now on to my conversation about how to become money zen. Manisha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Christine, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to ask you a question and drop a name that I've never dropped in this podcast before. Bring it on. I think it's going to excite a lot of people, especially Jill, who's worked with me for so long. What can we learn from Taylor Swift? Oh my gosh. I am absolutely obsessed with Taylor Swift. I just want to say- You and a gazillion other people. Exactly. (laughs) And uh, today- we're taping on the very day that Time Magazine announced her as the person of the year. And I think one of the biggest things we women can learn from her are twofold. One is that she's been in the public eye for 17 years now. And by all accords, she's done a pretty amazing job of being glamorous when she's out doing her work and then being a normal human being when she is back at home. And for multi-passionate, creative people, sometimes the worlds blend together. And, you know, she says in her documentary, Miss Americana, that, you know, she gets ideas for songs, you know, late at night or in the middle of the night. So, you know, they're creative bursts. But the most important thing is that she's engaging in what psychologists call positive work engagement as opposed to workaholism. And positive work engagement means that you're able to disconnect Mm. from your work, but still be really present and creative when you're in your work. How do you know she's doing that? There are a couple of different things that have popped up. So for example, throughout her career, if you read or watch any of the interviews that she's done even prior to putting out 1989, um, so when she was in her more of her country stage, you'll hear her talking about baking and um, for friends and cooking dinner for friends. And now, more recently, you're hearing some of her close circle, you know, talk about um, how she really cares for for friends and people. You know, Sophie Turner, who is famous for being on Game of Thrones, is getting divorced from Joe Jonas right now. And by the way, normally I'm not so TMZ. We'll get a little deeper in a moment. But, you know, she's let Sophie stay in her um, home in in New York. So, I mean, she's just, she's by all accounts a very kind 
person. And there are a lot of these small examples of where her humanity kicks in. And the last one I'll give is if you watch Miss Americana, which of course is directed and produced by Taylor, but you know, there are plenty of images of her without her makeup on, in her sweats, doing her thing in her own home. And so what that tells me is also she's not afraid to show the public who is looking at her every move that she's like us too. She's human. Mm. Mm. And what do you think we can learn from her? So the first thing is learning this concept of positive work engagement and understanding Mm. that you do not have to think about work 24-7, 365 in order to be ridiculously successful and um, productive. You can have a, a personal life. The second thing I think we can learn from her is how to deal with criticism. You know, she went through a period culminating with the reputation to her where she was just slammed left, right, and center in the media by pretty much everyone saying, you know, you're fake, your music isn't that great, you can't really be that nice, you're too this, you date too many guys, your songs are all about breakups. And she really had to pull inward. And she stated that she used to fill her her soul and her hole, which we all have inside in our soul at some point in our lives, with compliments and praise and cheers from the audience. And she finally had to learn to fill herself up. And if you watch the video, just Google, look what you made me do on YouTube. You'll see at the very end, she's got different tailors for all the different stages of her life. And they're each spouting what the criticism was that was coming up in that stage. And in the song, Look What You Made Me Do, there's that really powerful line where she says, Taylor can't come to the phone right now. Why? Because the old Taylor is dead. And so this notion of of learning to deal with criticism and rebirthing yourself Mm -hmm. by filling your hole inside when it comes to self-esteem with something other than other people's approval of you. Mm. Mm. I mean, I think that's a huge lesson that we're continuing to learn over and over and over again. And I think Taylor is so aspirational in so many ways. She's, she's in some ways hard to relate to. So I'd love, yeah, go ahead. There's one other thing, Christine, that I'd love to highlight because we don't see this enough in um, the upper echelons of business, certainly not in finance, where I've spent the last 30 years of my career. Beyonce showing up at the premiere of Taylor's heiress tour movie in LA and then Taylor flying over to London to be present at Beyonce's premiere of her concert movie. And both of them taking pictures with each other at this, you know, pivotal time in both of their careers. I I just found so inspiring because it shows that we 
don't have to compete with each other. We can support each other and make each other better. And I feel like in a lot of aspects in in our professional lives, women in particular, we're subconsciously pitted against each other. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's another really beautiful thing that we can learn from her. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I agree. So back to just pulling back. Yes. A lot of people, I mean, like, I'd love to relate to Taylor Swift. And in so many ways, I don't, because obviously my life and her life are very, very different. So I want to kind of pull, tease out what you talked about, like the distinction between workaholism, which I would also say, like overachiever, trying to compensate for something that you feel is missing inside of you. This can be all very subconscious by doing, 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 proving, 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 perfectionism, all those kind of motivations versus what was the other work style that you you, you said? Positive work engagement. Positive work engagement. Because I think that's such a huge distinction. And I'd love for our audience to come away from this conversation, knowing whether they have any, you know, workaholism, perfectionism, expectations, anything like that, or if they really have positive work engagement going on. So could you talk a little bit more about the distinction between those two things and especially the things that may not be so obvious? Oh my. Okay. So I'm going to try, and this is a big topic that really is at the heart of my work and the the book that I just published, Money's End, The the Secret to Finding You're Enough. So please interrupt me as I go along, Christine, so I don't make this into a monologue. When it comes to the difference between workaholism and positive work engagement, the clearest thing, the clearest test that you have positive work engagement is that when you are not working, you feel viscerally present in whatever it is that you're doing. Your mind is not drifting off to your work to-do list. You're not checking work emails. You're not feeling guilty or pressure that you should be doing something else. You are present with your children, with yourself, with your friends, with you know the gym equipment that you may be using. And this has been studied by a variety of different people. There, there literally is a group called Workaholics Anonymous. And if you Google it, they have a, a questionnaire that you can take to see if you are a workaholic. And there's another study, if you Google Bergen, B-E-R-G-E-N, work engagement test. There is a Scandinavian researcher who has also done a lot of work in this area, which is of particular interest because in the Scandinavian countries, because of social safety nets, there just is a very different relationship with work and and striving than what we have here in the U.S. Because in the U.S., what we're taught is who we are can be how much we're worth or how much we earn. Who we are is, is what we do. Who we are is, is what we have. And as a result, that can lead so many of us, and this was certainly the case with me, to feel like no matter how much I earned, no matter how much I achieved, no matter how many 
accomplishments. And no matter how much praise I received, it was never enough because I felt I was never enough. And so the cause of the workaholism is multifaceted, but one of the biggest and most common causes that I see is something called small T traumas, things that have happened to us before the age of 25, when our brains fully form, that as adults, we look back and think, well, how the heck could that still be bugging me or driving me? Um, And if you like, I can give you an example from my personal life. But many, many. Yes, yes. Examples are always, always super great because I think they help people relate. So um, in my case, I'm now 53. And it was as I approached age 50 that I had this awakening that I had spent literally the entirety of my adult life as a human doing, not a human being. And I never felt enough. And as I traced back where this came from, I grew up in a small town in Indiana. I'm mixed race and it was a very white small town. And I um, didn't fit in with the cool kids, to put it mildly. And I was quite chubby. And the kids called me things like thunder thighs and cow butt. And I can remember um, one time coming back from India and being so excited to wear a Punjabi uh, outfit, which is pants and kind of a long, intricately stitched top to school. And the kids called me pajama pants. And I just, oh, it it cut me, but it it really got bad by the time I was in sixth grade where, I mean, it was kind of like the movie Mean Girls. I'd go into mm. the cafeteria for lunch and the cool kids would spread their trays out. So there's no room for me to sit down. And as a result, I literally in sixth grade started to go home every day and sit under the picnic table instead of eat lunch, because I was too embarrassed to cope with that and tell my parents what was going on. Mm. And it's, it's oh, so, what it, kids go through. I mean, it just, uh, you know, but, and, and Christine, it's only 10 times, maybe 50 times worse today. So I, I want to explain kind of how that experience led into this workaholic, never enough mindset around money, success, careers. Because I was ostracized by my peers, I sought refuge in academics, got good grades, and then I'd get praise from my teachers for it. And, you know, I hid out in that all the way through college. That was my safe space. And then I went into the work world and I happened to go into um, investment banking and then investment management. And what replaces grades and praise, but money and promotions. And I, you know, the language that the habits that I had developed at a younger age to in somewhat of a healthy way, help me cope with the small T trauma of feeling like a social reject became a runaway trait when I was an adult and no longer needed to behave that way. But I continued to because I didn't realize I had a hole in my self-esteem and that I was filling it with, you know, I worked in finance. So different industries cause you to focus on different things. But I literally believe that my self-worth as a human was 
defined by my net worth. Such a toxic belief. Well, I wish that my little girl and your little girl adolescence had known each other because you're there's so many similarities. And I did the West Coast thing. I worked in Hollywood. So you did the investment banking. <laughs> I did the Hollywood thing. And it was the same thing. It was, how can I compensate for my massive insecurities? And achievement became my form of validation. And enough was never enough. It was yeah. never enough. It didn't matter what promotion I got, who I dated, how much money I had. It was never enough. So um, I had I was lucky to have my crash and burn moment in my mid-20s and kind of wake up to this, you know, early in my life and did a huge pivot. When was your big pivot? Oh, gosh. It wasn't, unfortunately, until I approached age 50. And it was that crash and burn that ultimately drove me to go on this two-year multidisciplinary research journey to kind of understand how I got there. But the relatively brief story is that um, about seven years before I had been on a motorcycle trip with my ex-husband, who is my ex-husband because I was never present and he found somebody who was. But I'm on this motorcycle trip with him in Laos and he's an off-road motorcyclist. So I was riding in motorcycle parlance two up on the back of his bike. Of course, not looking around. I had my earbuds in and I was listening to audible business books. But on our last day, we were in a capital city. And um, of course, I hopped on my computer and I was really diligent on putting on bug spray while we were in the jungle. But when I got into the urban area. I didn't. But of course, mosquitoes like to go where there are people. So there are lots of them in the urban area. And I didn't reapply the bug spray that I sweated off while working in an outdoor cafe. And I got bit by an infected bug and came down with dengue fever, which is called breakbone fever. Oh, dengue is gnarly. No, it's like, it really is. And, oh. and normally it's, you know, it's like malaria. You you recover with fluids and rest, but in a very small percentage of cases, you can have complications that could lead to organ failure. And I happen to be one of those cases. So fast forward, I'm back in the US, I'm in the hospital and um, literally they think um, I may be dying and they call my family in from, from the East Coast and my ex-husband and my my family, they're all around me. And I'm thinking, holy crap. I mean, it really is true. Like you don't think I wish I had worked more. All you think is I, I wish I'd spend time with my family. I hope they know how much I love them. Well, I didn't die. Um, I ended up being in the hospital for a fair amount of time. And within 10 days, um, and I, when I was able to sit up in my hospital bed, my assistant was at my side and I'm trying to figure out how to keep working. And mm. that was the, the the first slap in the face. But I didn't learn from that until I, in at age, you know, almost 50, I found myself not being able to stay awake longer than about five hours a day. And it turned out that I had Epstein-Barr combined with hyper and uh, inflammation of unknown origin, which is a long way of saying I had mono on steroids, but my body couldn't fight it off because my mm. autoimmune system 
was so inflamed from years of stress and my adrenal system was weakened by the dengue fever experience. And I had to be on bed rest. I had to take a medical leave from work and be on bed rest for nine months. And when Mm. you're awake for five or six hours a day and in bed for nine months, it Mm. really causes you um, and you're divorced and (laughs) childless Mm -hmm. and you've lost all your friends because you missed all of their birthdays and weddings and um, first children's births, et cetera. It's a wake up call. And Mm -hmm. and that's, that was what mine was. Mm. Massive wake up call. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's a lot that you've been through, and I really honor honor your experience and everything that you've you've been through. And I imagine with a career in working in investment banking, you definitely had a relationship with money. And not too many people that work in investment banking write a book called Money Zen. It's more about how to make money. So as you really question your priorities and values. How did your relationship and your view of money change? Change dramatically. Because when I hit that wall, currently I had an experience when I went back to work where I was in a client, prospective client meeting, and we, the client was very private and we wanted to run this analysis to, to show her and how we helped people identify when they had enough money. And I'd run the numbers on myself a million and one times, but the process was really almost life coachy in a way that we approached the financial um, planning aspect. And so they did a mock uh, discovery meeting on me with the prospective client in the room and had me walk through my money story And by the time I was done and I realized how much of my life's energy I had exchanged for the money that I had, and yet I was emotionally bankrupt, it was just this like light bulb that went off. And so what I ultimately came to realize is that I needed to replace the way I was living my life, which was to optimize the equation, self-worth equals net worth and find a new equation. And for me, after my research, I realized that the equation I want to follow and I'd like to help other people follow is financial health plus emotional wealth Mm. is what brings us money's end. Mm -hmm. How do you define financial wealth and emotional health? Ah, so this is interesting. People want to say it the way you just said it, Christine, because that's how we're taught to think about it. Oh, what did I say? Financial health and money wealth? wealth. (laughs) Yeah, financial financial wealth um, and emotional health. Mm -hmm. So financial health to me is when your finances are in a state that you have calm confidence and clarity around your relationship with money and the role you want it to play in your mm-hmm. life. It is a place at which no matter what your income or debt level is that you have clarity around the steps that you need to take if you are in debt and feeling stressed 
to move yourself out of that situation mm-hmm. where you feel supported if you're currently feeling underpaid, as so many women are, to advocate for yourself or consider um, shifting into other industries that you're giving yourself grace if you're in the sandwich stage of life where you're dealing with elder care and mm-hmm. raising kids. And it's having the courage to ask what may seem on the surface really simple questions that we should know the answers to, but almost nobody does. Like, how much do I have in our household and assets? How much do we have in total debt? How much is our total household income? Mm-hmm. How much house can I afford? How much car can I afford? And so committing to lifelong learning about the basics of personal finance, you don't need to know everything. I I wrote a primer about 15 years ago with a very close girlfriend from Harvard Business School. And what we found was our fellow Harvard Business School grads were asking us really basic personal finance questions. We've gone into finance, but they'd gone into consulting or marketing or strategy. And so we wrote a book called On My Own Two Feet, and um, it's still around, and it's known as a second edition, and it's it's like a girlfriend beach read. And if you're in your 20s or early 30s, if you read it, you will know more than 90% of Americans, including those that work in finance, about the core essential steps to have financial health. Mm. Can you say the name of that again? Sure. It's On My own two feet. And I want to recommend just a couple other books that can be very transformative for people. One is called Your Money or Your Life by Vicki Robin. And it is a book about this exact topic, the exchange of your life's energy for money and how much of that exchange do you want to do and I just can't recommend the book strong enough. It came out in 1992, second edition and 2018. I was lucky enough to speak on a couple panels with Vicki and it is, she's like the Pema children of money. Mm. And the other book that I really, really like to recommend is a book called Investing Made Simple. It's less than a hundred pages. So many times women tell me the piece of, personal finance that they struggle with the most is investing. Mm. And this slim book is written by an accountant named Michael Piper. And he wrote it when he was in his late 20s. And that was probably 10 years ago. And he updates the book constantly. So it's very current. It is the best 100 pages I have ever read on Mm. investing. And a person reads that, it's going to take them a very long way towards achieving financial health. And if you're a little bit older in in my generation, he's written a second book called Can I Retire? Both available on Amazon and both under 100 pages. And he walks people through um, how you answer that question and what you need to do to ultimately one day have the answer be yes. Mm, I love that. I love that. And of course we have your book, which we'll talk more about in a second. I want to ask you a question. It's a little more personal question. I I know that my, so many of my audience, um, well, it was, it's a very diverse group of people. And there, I know there are women out there in their forties and fifties who maybe are divorced, maybe don't have children. 
and are not feeling really emotionally wealthy right now and are feeling like, you know, the things they think they should have at this age as a woman in their life, whatever the societal shoulds that we all buy into, have eluded them for whatever reason. And they have regret and sadness over that. Could you speak to that woman? Oh my God. I was that woman. I mean, I can Mm. remember, um, I got married when I was 36. And again, in the Indian culture, um, I'm half Indian. That is so far past your sell-by date. It is not even funny. In traditional Indian cultures, you get married much younger. And um, I I felt like a black sheep um, and a blot on my family's reputation within our extended family. I felt like such a misfit. And I didn't have children. And I I just felt like I'd failed adulting. And the way in which I felt like I failed adulting may be wildly different from someone else's reflections on their lives that are bringing this sense of regret or um, sometimes even despair. And what I want to say is we live in such a different world. Um, I love to read, as you'll see. I have a friend named April Rinne, R-I-N-N-E. She's written a book called Flux, F-L-U-X. And it's all about how to think about your life as a a portfolio of chapters. Mm. And we don't all go through those. our, Our portfolios of life don't all look the same. And our chapters don't all go in the same order. Mm. And so I I encourage women, number one, not to feel alone. um, Because as I have come to realize through my speaking work, there are millions of us Mm -hmm. (laughs) who felt that way. And two, that you're unique. And one of the biggest joys in life is to be able to rawly, um, really, and unabashedly self-express. And, you know, when we feel regret, oftentimes it's not for something that we want to like celebrate, but That actually feeling, talking, not fighting that regret. Yeah. And thinking about what, okay, that's what happened. That's where I am right now. What do I want right. to do going forward? Can be really powerful, especially if you do, as, as April recommends, think about yourself as this portfolio of chapters in your life. Mm, I love that. I love that. I love that. And so much of our judgments on ourselves are based on what we think we should be doing versus like versus really appreciating our life for what it is and how it can be different. You know, I am married and have a child now, but my entire 30s, I was divorced and single and everybody was getting married and having children. So um, I remember that feeling and the thing that soothed it was really looking at, wait, this is, this is my life. Like I, I get to do it the way that I want to do it. And 
one thing that I think is is an, is really important to talk about too, especially when it comes to money, is well, we have a like I said, a diverse audience, so men are listening too, and I have a feeling a lot of people listening to this particular episode are going to be women. Um, but women have women can have a different relationship to money than men can. And so I'm just curious if we have any, like if you could scream one thing to all women that you'd love to like shift about our mindset, or our relationship to money, what would it be? Know that money gives women voices and choices. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think when we look at money that way, because money can be so loaded. So for example, I have a girlfriend who has been earning mid to upper six figures for her entire 30 plus year career. She's not married. Um, She's been living with somebody for quite some time, but he doesn't want to get married and um, they split expenses and she has nothing in retirement savings. And I've asked her like, honey, you work in finance. What are you doing? And, And she says, Honestly, I feel like if I take care of myself financially, no one will come into my life and want to take care of me. And, you know, when she unwinds those messages, you know, it goes back. She's, you know, in her late 50s now, the messages she saw growing up, you know, other other women are taught, you know, don't talk about this. It's not a polite thing to talk about, whereas men are socialized to be breadwinners. And ironically, today, um, nearly 50% of women are primary or co-breadwinners in their households. Mm-hmm. But men start talking about money at a lot younger age. I mean, in college, they'll start talking about it, whereas women often don't talk about it until we're having fights with their spouse, um, trying to do fertility treatments or other expensive things, getting divorced, dealing with elder care. But I'll also say that, you know, many men tell me as I'm talking about this, you know, this journey, this experience, this story, that that they feel it too. Um, And so it's, it's nuanced the ways in which men and women can think about things differently. But what I have found is it's not defined by your biological gender. It's defined by your mindset. I I find there's a feminine Mm. energy towards money and a masculine energy towards money. I have a very masculine energy towards money. There are men I meet who have a very feminine um, orientation around money. So I just, I want to emphasize that the differences are much more around your energetic connection to the room. I love that. Money plays in your life. I love that distinction. Thank you for that. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about joy-based spending. Absolutely. So one of the things I discovered early on, I spent the first 15 years of my career advising corporations, endowments, foundations, And then I switched gears when I I wrote this book with my girlfriend and um, moved over into advising individuals. And now I've shifted again and I'm back on the corporate side. But what I found when I was working with individuals was that people hated the word budgeting, yet at Mm -hmm. the core of financial health is the, the cash 
and the way you deal with cash, cash is like the financial version of blood running through your body. Mm-hmm. You get clots, bad things happen. And so I wanted to encourage people to understand the flow of money through their life, but in a way that didn't feel constraining. And so I ultimately encourage people to use three tools. One um, is a simple joy audit where for a period of time, as long as you can possibly tolerate it, you write down everything you spend money on. But at the end, you don't add anything up and you don't judge anything. You just take out a highlighter and you highlight anything you spent money on that didn't make you happy. And of course, there's things like the utility bills, et cetera, et cetera, which, yes, you can try and renegotiate. But I've never met anybody who didn't find something like soccer lessons for the kids who hate the coach and you hate driving them there. Or, you know, dinner out with a couple where you always split the bill and you're not drinking and they're wine uh, connoisseurs and always order really expensive alcohol that you end up paying for. And, you know, so there are things in everybody's life where um, I call it leaking money. And when you eliminate those expenses and redirect that cash into a different direction, you're not reducing your joy because those things weren't giving you joy. Mm. And then mm. step two of the process comes from Vicki Robbins' book and this notion that most of us have money coming into our life because we or somebody in our household worked and, and earned an income for it. And so when we're spending money, technically what we're spending is life energy. And most people allocate about 2,000 hours a year to work-oriented activities from actually being at work, commuting, et cetera, 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year. So if you're earning $60,000 and you divide that by 2,000 hours, you're earning $30 an hour before tax. And now if you see something that costs $300, you can do the math and ask yourself like, hmm, I got this ruler. if it's $300 and I earn $30 an hour before tax, that means I'm going to have to work at least 10 hours or someone in my household is working at least 10 hours. Is this worth it? And the answer very well may be yes, or it may be no. And it's also a great tool to use with kids. You know, the older they are, the more you can help them craft, you know, if you're a teenager, what would you earn if you were a lifeguard or, you know, doing a typical summer job. If your kids are younger, you can give them an employee, you know, make the math easy. Tell them they earn $10 an hour. And so when when they're bugging you for a toy, ask them if they're willing to do chores for that many hours. <laughs> and then the last one is I call the power of the pause, which is we just move so fast today and everything encourages us to make instant decisions. And so when you're shopping online, I encourage people for wants, not needs, put it in your cart, wait a week, and then come back and look at it. And if Mm. you're in a store, take a photo, come back in a week. And if it's not there in a week, you know what? Maybe that's the universe telling you, "Mm, wasn't meant to be. Mm. I love that. I love that. Well, we refer, we referred to your book a couple of times and money. I'd love for you to chat about as we start to wrap up who this book is geared toward. Because I imagine you wrote it with someone in mind. Absolutely. I wrote this book specifically for anyone who's ever identified with any of these statements. 
and I referenced them before, but they're powerful. So I'll say them again. No matter how much I earn, it's never enough. No matter how many accomplishments I achieve, it's never enough. No matter how much praise I receive, it's never enough because I feel that I'm never enough. Or it's the flip side that I have been sucked into society's narrative that the answer to virtually anything that ails us is more, more money, more work, more success, more likes, more followers. And when people are stuck in that trap, which I very much was, life becomes bleak. And so I wrote this book in a way that's slightly different than most nonfiction books, in the sense that most nonfiction books describe the problem for the first 20% of the book, and then the remaining 80% of the book is the answer. The reason finding you're enough is so hard is that I can't give you three tips to, or the five secrets of. The process of finding you're enough is 80% of it is identifying the problem of how you ended up with a never enough mindset, which for most of us is a combination of four factors, small T traumas, societal expectations, cultural norms, and evolutionary biology. Go into all of that in detail in the book. But unlocking that Rubik's Cube of how those four factors have come to bring you to that painful place of feeling never enough then frees you to act on this new framework, which I call financial health plus emotional wealth equals money zen. And I'm going to keep remembering that. Financial health and emotional wealth equals money zen. And I totally agree with that. I completely agree with that. Being emotionally wealthy has helped me become financially wealthy. So that's so helpful. And what have people been saying has helped the most with this book? What has been their biggest takeaways from this book so far? I've had some really shocking reactions. The first is that I thought my whole career has been really focused um, wherever I can in financially empowering women. I figured this book would primarily appeal to women. I have been stunned by the number of men who have read this book and been like, oh my God, you are talking to me. And that surprised me, really made me realize this is a, a, a gender neutral problem. Also, the number of people who told me that they always knew that something in their past was was driving them in an unhealthy way, but they felt like, well, how could that really be that bad? Because when I stated as an adult, it it doesn't seem like it's that much. And I asked Mm -hmm. an executive coach, two of them actually, who deal with C-suite level um, individuals, what percentage of their client base did they feel were driven to that level of success by small T traumas? One said 75% and the other said, 100%. Mm, Wow. The the final, those are both very high numbers. (laughs) Right. Oh, right. I mean, you know, about what it takes to end up in the C-suite, how much people often sacrifice. And this is why to come full circle, I think Taylor Swift is such a wonderful role model for us and being very creative, prolific, but also having a personal life. And then the last thing, 
and also comes back to Taylor Swift, which is people have said one of the best things about reading Money's End, besides the fact that it's actually short and you can read it in a plane ride from the East to the West Coast, is that it makes you not feel uh, alone. I was way more um, unguarded, raw, and PMI in this book than I ever would have been if I had stayed in the the old poverty world that I was in. And people have said that, and it was not just my story, I interviewed many other individuals and they share their raw stories. And people said they just felt that they were in community. Mm. And, you know, the U.S. Surgeon General says we're suffering from a loneliness epidemic right now. And I think it's oh, true. Yeah. Oh, I think so too. Yeah. I think we're a loneliness epidemic, a technology addicted epidemic, a health, I mean, so many epidemics. So um, thank you for being someone out there, putting the good work out there and, and helping people, you know, look at money from an emotional intelligence perspective and and letting it be something that can be a tool in our life and can bring us... Um, well, our relationship to it can bring us great sense of peace, but it it won't is isn't the answer. Right. It isn't the answer. And then there's a lot of very wealthy people who are very unhappy. But if we can have that emotional wealth combined with the financial health, then then we have that Zen money. So thank you so much for your work. I imagine this book is available on Amazon and and in bookstores. Absolutely. Although, you know, it's funny, people ask me, did you go on a book tour? And I'm like, no, there are no bookstores anymore. And when I'm yeah, sure not. Tour, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. Um, I, honestly, Amazon is the best place to find it. As much as I love independent bookstores, they're not able to carry very many That's um, true. books. So if you're not a New York Times bestseller, it's hard to find it in an independent bookstore. So Amazon is is the place to go for money's in. Great. And if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? I have a very simple life. My entire home base for all of the work that I do, including this book, is at moneyzen.com. Easy. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for sharing from your personal life. I just think that helps people and makes it so much more relatable. And in this epidemic of loneliness we're feeling when we hear other people's story, it helps us feel less alone. So thank you for that. Christine, thank you for asking these really insightful questions and letting me chat with you and your audience for a little bit.